Hello and welcome to another episode of a Tisket Tasket podcast. I'm your host, Gina, and this is the third episode following the theme of babies in nursery rhymes. Earlier, I covered Monday's Child in Bye Baby Bunting. Definitely check out those episodes if you haven't already. Today, we're covering the nursery rhyme Hush Little Baby. And as always, please check out my blog for a list of my references and links to how you can support my work. Info in the description below. But with that, let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to the enchanting world of nursery rhymes, where childhood memories and timeless tales intertwine. Join us on the A Tisket Tasket podcast as we embark on a delightful journey through the rich history and captivating origins of beloved nursery rhymes. Tune in for an exploration that will delight nursery rhyme enthusiasts and folklore aficionados alike. And now your host, Gina. Hush Little Baby has a Roud Folk Song index number of 420. This is one of those nursery rhymes that I came in with assumptions on where it originated. I assumed, like many, that originated in England and figured, given the content matter, it was from maybe the 17th or 18th century. Well, as you can imagine where I'm going with this, what I uncovered was quite surprising. But before we get into that, let me go through the rhyme to refresh your memory. Even trying to find which version to say was difficult for this episode. There are quite a few, and I really can't tell if one is more popular than another. If you have one that you know, or if you have one that's in your mind that you find resonates with your childhood, email me. I would love to talk to you. Email me at info at or find my links in the description wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm going to start with the one I remember from my childhood and then explain a few different versions as I go along. Songwriter Bradley Joseph Trochill adjusts the lyrics I remember just a bit in his recording. Here it is. Lullaby, lullaby, lullaby. Hush, little baby, don't you cry. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Papa's gonna buy you a mockingbird. And if that mockingbird don't sing, Papa's gonna buy you a diamond ring. And if that diamond ring is brass, Papa's gonna buy you a looking glass. And if that looking glass gets broke, Papa's gonna buy you a billy goat. And if that billy goat don't pull, Papa's gonna buy you a cart and bull. And if that cart and bull turn over, Papa's gonna buy you a dog called Rover. And if that dog called Rover don't bark, Papa's gonna buy you a horse and cart. And if that horse and cart turn round, you'll still be the sweetest baby in town. American composer Bradley Joseph, born in 1965, arranges and produces contemporary instrumental music. He toured quite a bit in the American Midwest until teaming up with famed Greek composer Yanni. He is also an accomplished musical director. I've heard his voice and compositions a few times as I've researched this podcast, but I had no idea he was such an accomplished composer. I found it very interesting when I tried to dig up any more about his work with specifically children's music. I couldn't find anything. It's not even mentioned in his Wikipedia page. 
But if you'd like to learn more about his amazing modern composition, check out his Wikipedia page, link in my reference. It's actually pretty adept, but I was still very confused on why his work in, with nursery rhymes isn't posted anymore. I think I might reach out to him to see if I can't figure out why he decided to record lullabies, children's music, and nursery rhymes. But in any case, let's move on. In 1980, the King Singers did an acapella version of the song produced by Warner Classics. I wish I could play it because it's a gorgeous rendition, but alas, copyright laws. But again, you can find it on my reference page. Links are the same as above. From a site called AmericanEnglishWebsite.gov, and it doesn't provide more information than that, the rhyme is posted as follows. Hush, little baby, don't you cry. Papa's gonna sing you a lullaby. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Papa's gonna buy you a mockingbird. If that mockingbird won't sing, Papa's gonna buy you a golden ring. If that gold ring turns to brass, Papa's gonna buy you a jumping jack. If that jumping jack is broke, Papa's gonna buy you a velvet cloak. If that velvet cloak is coarse, Papa's gonna buy you a rocking horse. If that rocking horse won't rock, Papa's gonna buy you a cuckoo clock. If that cuckoo clock won't tick, Papa's gonna buy you a walking stick. If that walking stick falls down, you'll still be the sweetest little baby in town. I think this is the version I remember most, maybe, because I remember, like, the velvet cloak and the rocking horse and the cuckoo clock. But, like, definitely a mystery that really needs to be uncovered, all these different versions. I mean, obviously, the nursery rhyme is about parents figure buying increasingly maybe more expensive or other objects to try to get their baby to quiet down. It does change from mama to papa. Those The items change, and sometimes the endings can be a little bit different, and I'll get to that in a moment. The website Mama Lisa's World International Music and Culture has a few different versions on her site, including including the Paolo Rimpamanti, noted Italian singer, version. I particularly like this site. I was a bit skeptical when I first came across it about a year ago because I was unsure of the credibility of the author, but the more I've read and delved into her sources, I've been really impressed. She seems to really dig up sources that are difficult to find, some of these primary sources. Anyway, here's Ripamonti's version. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna buy you a mockingbird. If that mockingbird don't sing, Mama's gonna buy you a diamond ring. If that diamond ring turns to brass, Mama's gonna buy you a looking glass. If that looking glass gets broke, Mama's gonna buy you a billy goat. If that billy goat runs away, Mama's gonna buy you another day. And then I got sucked into the vortex of Reddit because I was googling around to see different versions and reading through a number of people's versions that they admittedly made up themselves. But I love folklore because that's how folklore works. People just change things. But here are a few of my favorites. From user Mia Jade1996, posted in 2020. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mummy gonna buy you a mockingbird. And if that mockingbird don't sing, mummy's gonna buy you a diamond ring. And if that diamond ring don't shine, mama's, mama's gonna buy you some turpentine. And if that turpentine smells bad, mama's gonna buy you a big fat cat. And if that fat cat scratches you, mummy's gonna take you to the Chester Zoo. I particularly like that one. From user Sunny Georgia posted in 2020, Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna buy you a mockingbird. And if that mockingbird don't sing, Mama's gonna buy you a diamond ring. And if that diamond ring don't shine, 
Mama's going to buy you a porcupine. And if that porcupine don't prick, Mama's going to buy you a knocking stick. And if that knocking stick don't knock, Mama's going to buy you a cuckoo clock. And if that cuckoo clock don't chime, Mama's going to sing you another rhyme. Just one of the things that I absolutely love about nursery rhymes, and I also am absolutely frustrated by nursery rhymes, as well in folklore studies, is that these songs often get passed down orally and not written down, which make them incredibly easy to get changed or evolved or adapted to a specific situation. And I can go on about this, and I do go on about this in an interview that I'll be posting in a little bit. I really enjoy looking at the history of the everyday and the everyday person. That is, history of what's going on in a home that might not necessarily make it into the history books. And folklore is definitely that. And these songs and these nursery rhymes are so integral to childhood development and uh, learning culture that I love that folklore changes and adapts. But I also hate it because as a researcher, it's really hard to pin down. I guess that's a catch-22, catch if you will, or it's just something I have to deal with, I guess. So where did this nursery rhyme really come from if there are all these different versions? No one is certain. It sounds like the general consensus is that it's from the United States, which is also frustrating to me because that means that the Opies did not include it in the Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes. The folklorists who did collect it with Cecil Sharp, who have talked a bit about in this podcast, Sharp, born in Surrey, England from 1859 to 1924, was a folklorist responsible for collecting a lot of American nursery rhymes, folk songs, and folk dances in the United States around the turn of the century and World War I. He was also an accomplished composer and had a number of folklore books with his own piano arrangements. His most prominent work, which I haven't read yet but I need to, is English Folk Songs, Some Conclusions. And I'm going to draw an assumption here where when I've been reading about his sources, it sounds like he put a lot of himself, just like John Orchard Halliwell put a lot of his opinions in, it sounds like Sharp did as well. And that's well and good because folklore isn't an exact science, but it's difficult years later as someone who's researching it and can't specifically ask them, like, what's their opinion or what did they add versus what did, did they, like, specifically collect from the people. And that's very difficult. But in any case, he worked with awesome female folk collectors also who hardly ever got named in folklore history, like Olive Dame Campbell and Maud Carpellis between 1915 and 1918 or so. These women were collecting Southern Appalachian folklore before Sharp got there. And I know there's a book out there that's specific to Appalachian folklore that may have been written by Sharp. But for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the book. I'll have to look it up later. But I don't really see Campbell and Carpellis being uh, mentioned a lot in folklore history, even though that they were the guide that literally took Sharp around to these different settlements. But in any case, one of my favorite quotes from Sharp are about the Appalachians. And the reason why I talk about this a lot is that that's the region I'm from, and I identify with it and its culture, even though that I haven't lived in that part for my adult life. It's still a culture that I feel very proud of, especially as a child, a second generation, a child of Italian immigrants. And being married to someone who is the child of Italian immigrants, my culture that I identify with is this weird amalgam of like Appalachian hillbilly as well as Italian culture. And that's a whole other podcast that I can go into about how my specific background influences my perspective on my research. But I don't have time to get into that today. 
In any case, Sharp writes that the people are just English of the late 18th century or early 19th century. They speak English, look English, their manners are old-fashioned English. Heaps of words and expressions they use habitually in ordinary conversations are obsolete and have been in England a long time. I find them very easy to get on with and have no difficulty in making them sing and show their enthusiasm for their songs. I have taken down very nearly 100 already, and many of these are quite unknown to me and aesthetically of the highest value. Indeed, it is the greatest discovery I have made since the original one I made in England 16 years ago. This was written in 1917, I think. Sharp is an interesting character, I think. His perspective in his writing seems a little like zookeeper to zoo animal perspective a bit, which I, as a modern researcher and in ethnographic research, don't particularly like. But again, another podcast episode. But I would like to point out that it was Olivia Dame Campbell and her husband John were the ones leading Sharp to these communities. It wasn't Sharp just kind of stumbling into them on their own. They also specifically, and this is important, stuck to Scots-American and Scots-Irish settlements, which is why Sharp probably recognized the ballots but failed to consider them in their Scots origin. So he, like, failed to consider, oh, maybe I'm being biased or maybe these specific settlements are familiar to me because of X, Y, Z. And I think that's really a an issue with this research and um, a weakness that really needs to be understood and considered for anyone doing future research on this. They specifically, and again, this is important, avoided German-American settlements because keep in mind, this is World War I in African-American settlements, which is an absolute and real shame because one of the greatest thing about Appalachian culture is the blend between African-American, Native American, and American immigrants or immigrants from Europe. And I, again, I mentioned that I come from an Italian-American immigrant family. And when I ask my parents and grandmother about the lack of segregation in schools during the 50s and 60s, they shrugged and said that poor people all mingled together. And once you did the back-breaking labor of coal mining or farm work, racial divides sort of fell by the wayside. One of my favorite pictures I have of my grandmother is from her one-room schoolhouse days. She actually went to school with Clark Gable of Gone with the Wind fame. And in the picture there, you know, keep in mind, this is from the 30s and 40s, I think. There are African-Americans in her school. There was no segregation. When I talked to my grandmother and I talked with my parents, specific racism that you saw in the movements in the 60s and 70s were kind of brushed aside by Appalachian culture. And when I like got into high school and I started to learn about the race movement, I was really confused because it's like, this was my parents' era, but they never really went through it because they lived in an area where everyone was kind of in the same economic boat and everyone was poor and everyone was kind of tied to the coal mines and whatnot. And so that really created a different amalgamation of culture. And I'm not saying that racism didn't exist there. But it was it was very different and it was a very unique perspective and something that I really took for granted growing up and have taken it for granted as an adult who have researched these things and something that I'm only really reconsidering now when I sit down and I look at these nursery rhymes. And I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I'm of the opinion that I think it's really important to understand the context in which the researcher is doing his or her work. In the person that I interviewed later, that was kind of an eye-opening experience I had with him because this person's work is really important to me. And I wondered if 
they had a specific mentality of how they went about doing things. And it was like, yeah, because I felt like it. And so I think it's important now that when I'm doing this research, that I articulate kind of what's going on in my head as I do this, so that if it's ever, if I'm ever lucky enough, if this is ever used years from now, there isn't a question like, well, why didn't she consider it this way? So again, sorry, that's a tangent, but I, I, I do think it's a very important. In any case, that was a very, talking about my parents and my grandmother, it was definitely a poignant memory for me. And it really has helped me keep my perspective in check when I research folklore. I haven't dealt specifically in Appalachian folklore yet because, oh my gosh, I don't have the time, but I'd really like to. And if anyone has any book recommendations, shoot them my way. I don't have time to write all these books. But in any case, I got distracted, so let me circle back to the hushed little baby. Cecil Sharp was probably the first person to write down and note this nursery rhyme from Endicott, Franklin County, Virginia in 1918. Other sources place this rhyme in the southern United States. The Vaughn Williams Memorial Library site has a wonderful wax cylinder version from around 1929-1935 that was recorded in Durham, North Carolina. The lyrics are as follows because when I play it later, it's a bit hard to make out. Mama, mama, have you heard? Papa's gonna buy me a mockingbird. And if that mockingbird don't sing, Papa's gonna buy me a diamond ring. And if that diamond ring turns brass, Papa's gonna buy me a looking glass. And if that looking glass gets broke, Papa's going to buy me a billy goat. And if that billy goat runs away, Papa's gonna buy me a horse and shay. The entertainer wrote anonymously, and I wish I knew who wrote this, uh, wrote the comments, I have also heard the last line, Papa's going to give me a whipping every day. So let's listen to the version. It's difficult to make out, but I'll try to my best to fix the audio. Man, I love wax cylinders. I think they're so cool. But it's the last line uh, that the annotator added that leads me to the wonder wonderful version from the Library of Congress. And before I talk about it, let's just listen to it. Hush, little baby, don't you cry. Mama gonna buy you a diamond ring. If that diamond ring don't fit, Mama gonna whoop your little tit. Hush, little baby, don't you cry. Mama gonna buy you a diamond ring. If that diamond ring don't fit, Mama gonna whoop your little tit. Hush, little baby, don't you cry. Mama gonna buy you a mockingbird. If that mockingbird don't sing, Mama gonna wake your bum bum leg. Hush, little baby, don't you cry. Mama gonna buy you a diamond ring. If that diamond ring don't fit, Mama's gonna whip your little shit. Hush, little baby, don't you cry. Mama gonna buy you a mockingbird. If that mockingbird don't sing, Mama gonna whip your ring. A little bit different, right? Now, when I listen to this version over and over again, I cannot make out what she's saying after she says, Mama's going to whip you in the 
whatever. And I'm afraid to speculate it to ruin whatever it is that she said. But this wonderful reversion was recorded in Varner, Arkansas in 1939. The singer is Bernice Haynes. You'll note that the lyrics are fairly different than the ones I recorded earlier. And I want to know why. I want to know if this is sort of the original version or if it evolved or changed from the ones I listed above. Chicken the egg situation. And I'm so curious and I cannot find the answers. I really think that this nursery rhyme, I'm going to have to come back and do more research on. There's just so much to it. But to continue, Ray Wood sang yet another version, similar to the ones I first listed, recorded by John Lomax in House in the Library of Congress. This version was recorded in Houston, Texas on April 13, 1939. Let's listen to it now. Another is sung to a tune similar to Tarara Bundier. Hush, my baby, don't say a word. Daddy'll buy you a mockingbird. When that mockingbird don't sing, Daddy'll buy you a diamond ring. When that diamond ring turns brass, Daddy'll buy you a looking glass. When that looking glass gets broke, Daddy'll buy you a billy goat. When that billy goat gets bony, Daddy'll buy you a Shetland pony. When that pony runs away, ta ra 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 boom dee I really like that the Library of Congress has very specific information on where things were recorded, who recorded them, and when they were recorded. But I love that I found all these versions. Now, at the beginning, Wood says that this is sung to the melody similar to ta ra 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 boom dee of which I was fully unfamiliar with and led me onto yet another search path. That took me to a folk song that was performed in a number of places, including the Ed Sullivan Show, where it was referenced that the song was from around the 1890s, and surprisingly, to the 90s children's show Barney. Which is very strange, because ta ra 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 boom is originally a vaudeville song with um, less than copacetic lyrics for the kiddies. But in any case, this could be an entire episode of itself, and maybe... Because holy guacamole, the history of this song. And if you're interested in this particular song, let me know. Reach out and I will talk to you. I've already run out of time and I still have so much to say. I haven't even added my own opinion yet. So to recap, no one really knows where this song came from. Cecil Sharp, who was a big folklorist and American folklore at the turn of the 20th century, says it's from around Virginia and the Appalachian region in the mid-19s. We have a reference to the melody from a vaudeville song in 1880. Now, here's where I'll put a big disclaimer. I have a suspicion. And I cannot articulate the suspicion with any certainty. So if anyone is ever using this as a source in their paper, I'm going to put a note here that says, I am not an expert in nursery rhymes. I have not published anything. I'm not a known expert in the field, although I feel like I'm getting there. And I have not done my research to see if this is true. But I have a suspicion that this song comes from the Civil War. And here's why. In my previous episodes, I talked specifically about African-American slave songs during the Civil War and post-Civil War, and I talk about what a shame it was that a lot of this history was destroyed in the whitewashing of American history, especially right after the Civil War and in the civil rights movements in the 50s and 60s. Because it was found in the South, as well as the Appalachian region, where a lot of the, the former African-American slaves moved to after the Civil War, I wonder if this was a song made up for mammies or nannies 
who sang to their white charges. Because if you look at the lyrics, first of all, in the back of my head, I've, I remember from my literature days that mockingbirds actually have a big folklore background on African-American history. Again, it's been a while, and I think I'm going to do more research on this later. But if you listen to the lyrics, Mama and Papa are buying expensive things for the baby. And I think it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek when they talk about what happens when something happens to the expensive item. So I'm wondering if this was a song that was made up on a, on a slave plantation and then passed down and was lost to whitewashing of history. And we know from previous nursery rhymes that the melody often follows the lyrics and sometimes by decades or sometimes by centuries. So it would make sense to me that this nursery rhyme picked up the melody, if, say, 20 or 30 years after the abolishment of slavery in a vaudeville song, which we know has ties to African-Americans because of my research in vaudeville in my previous episodes. So I feel like this is either a brilliant observation or a tinfoil hat moment that might lead to fake, fake etymology. But in any case, I think it needs to be further researched, and I don't know if I'm going to be the one to do it. So if a graduate student's out there listening to this and they need a project for graduate school, this might make an interesting project, or perhaps I will pursue it myself. But in any case, I'm already like running way over time this week, and I still have so much to say about Hush Little Baby. But in any case, I really enjoyed researching it because I had assumptions when I came into it that were just completely blown away. So I hope you too have learned something and were interested in the topic. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to email me and contact me. I am like rabid to talk to people about my research and would love to. I'm also interested in maybe having guests on my podcasts where um, we share conversations about nursery rhymes and the history and researching of them. So again, please see the description below for my contact information. But in any case... I will continue to talk about the weirdness of nursery rhymes in future episodes. Please take care. Thank you for listening to a Tisket Tasket podcast. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. If you found value in today's content, please share with others and consider leaving a review. Also, Follow Gina on all social media platforms, and we'll see you next time.